Hello, and welcome back to my podcast. This is the second part of a three-part series on future-proofing humanity. I talked in the last episode about what evolutionary attributes humans have that might prepare us to survive the changes and upheaval that human technologies and social change will cause in the future. What I want to look at today is what do we have now and what are the technologies maturing in the present moment that promise the chance to improve our lives in the future and create a long-term sustainable solution for our problems. Now again, the main two problems that I foresee in the future is social stability, given that humanity will expand to such a size, such a diversity of backgrounds, etc., and also beating the odds. I think that as we become more powerful or more capable of affecting ourselves in our environment, we need ways to beat the odds of us just randomly, by accident, destroying ourselves. So my methodology for this series, as it was in the previous episode and I tried to dive deeper into in this episode, is that I need to address a lot of these issues at a fundamental level and in a way that works over a very long period of time. So what I'll attempt to do with this episode is create a formula for how humans live that applies at a very, very underlying level to our cultures. So with that, we look at the modern day. The present day sees us as a species capable of forming coalitions, agreements, and cooperative structures on the scale of dozens of countries and of billions of people. Yet, not everyone on Earth is happy, and some people and organizations stand to gain, still, from disrupting the blocks of cooperation created, let's say, by people they label as enemies. The kind of challenge we have today is eliminating fundamental pressures individuals and groups have to cause disruption, aggression, and such. This would also need to be done in a way which operates at a low cost, meaning it's something that maintains itself without the presence of some kind of guarantor or strong hand keeping it all together. One extreme idea which some people argue to varying degrees is to make all these kinds of potential differences that two groups could use to fight over each other just non-existent. One could look at race, class, intelligence, privilege, or religion, all as things that group people into different camps, which may stand to oppose each other. Working to eliminate the idea of being different could be a solution. We can see that, for example, a lot of social initiatives focus on breaking down these kinds of taxonomies which humans invent to categorize ourselves. And so while this is a morally, I would say, agreeable idea, I would still suggest that in practice, many of these taxonomies which do lead to people conceiving of themselves as different emerge from actual features and different characteristics. Experiential context begotten from things as basic as genes and environment mean there will always be identities, interests, and needs which are not uniform to everyone. A lot of future thinking hinges on the belief that humans can reach a state where context and personal experience doesn't matter, and they may achieve a sense of unity with someone who has a different set of personal contexts and experiences. I'd still suggest that because everyone does intrinsically have to be brought up in a different place, in a different way, with different parents, 
These kinds of differences are always going to have an impact on the way we categorize ourselves. We should, however, try to find ways of arriving at a point where intergroup hostility is eliminated and cooperation is favored. So, the internet specifically is an example that we can look at, which is close to being a kind of technology that can unify us as a species on a deep and meaningful level. So the internet is a tool which makes available and delivers a huge amount of cultural content, which comes directly from the producers and experiences of that culture. As someone experiencing the internet, you can connect in a more direct way than ever before to the experiences of other people. However, a post-internet cultural trend we can observe is that as the multiplicity of identities, beliefs, and behaviors continues to expand, people are more prone to strongly identifying with groups that are adversarial to others. Take for example internet subcultures, um, beliefs in different media sources, and affiliation with political parties. The self-categorization of people on the internet into these groups has led to a lot of hostility between those groups and a hardening of these blocks. This is opposite to what a lot of people thought would happen, where people would discover all these other subcultures and groups and begin to identify more with them and connect with them because they have access to all of the cultural information on them. There has been a peculiar effect the internet has revealed around cultural exposure. And I'll summarize it as this. Just because the information is available doesn't mean it will be delivered and received in the correct context. The correct context seems to be very important. After all, I believe that just facts or observations in general only underdetermine beliefs and worldviews. That is to say, facts alone only inform and not point to a worldview. They're only used to corroborate a belief. So I'll return to the unsolved question here. How do we create a system in which we are all unified at some deep and meaningful level? As I said, I don't think this will be reached by becoming all alike. I'd suggest here that the internet is only the first half of an information transformation required to achieve this. This transformation, and essentially the way we communicate, once complete, would not only allow humans to merely access information, but also allow high-fidelity, subjective data to be transmitted and received. Think of it as like an internet of feelings. If there were some way that humans could connect with each other which unmasks us from one another and reveals the true beliefs and experiences behind the affiliations, the needs, and feelings of others, then each interaction would produce facts and a sociological context Thus, this would go a long way to almost eliminate the sort of underdetermination of those facts, or at least remedy the disconnect in feelings associated with beliefs. To truly understand what a belief or piece of information means to someone else, or to some other group, places the outsider, the one seeking to understand it, in a position of openness, and increases the chances for acceptance and cooperation. I believe that if there were such a future technology that can essentially transfer empathy, just as the internet can transfer facts, would blow open the barriers to clear communication and reduce the need or even the chances for deception. 
and pave the way for a new paradigm of interhuman relations. The reason why I call it a just technology instead of device or machine or app is that I want it to stay pretty general. All that I'm concerned about for the purposes of this exercise is that it is some kind of tool or technology that can effectively implant feelings into someone that is captured from another person. That's really all that it needs to do. So circling back a little bit, to recap what my thinking behind choosing this direction, empathy, as the one which could lead to the most sustainability and improvement for humanity in the long term, is my belief about communication from the first episode. Given that I believe that communication is so essential to the human experience, and in this case, enhancing that experience, I'm convinced that this is generally the way to approach it. And we can see that there's a precedent for this too. I believe that a positive change in the clarity and fidelity of communication between humans would be following alongside a trend for all humans in general to attain more advanced forms of communication as our technology improves. This started with evolving the ability to read facial expressions and attach meaning to noises, and the trend has slowly progressed and we've added things like language, reading, writing, postal services, phone calling, video calling, to our tool belt of communication. This evolution in interhuman communication can now be more deliberately pursued. We can now make inventions with this very goal in mind. I doubt that in the past we've been as introspective and as capable of making these changes deliberately. Each improvement on our communication technologies has been able to not only capture more of the thoughts and feelings of whomever created the message, but also deliver those thoughts and feelings clearly over increasingly longer distances and periods of time. This is why I feel like the natural step for us is to create technologies which try to directly encapsulate the thoughts and feelings we struggle to translate from inside our brains to the outer world and send them in their original form to other people. Just a quick note on the neurology here. Um, I say that we struggle to translate feelings from inside of our brains to the outer world. There's currently a lot of research and debate around whether it is the case that the human brain has a sort of language of its own that exists inside of ourselves, and we have these other systems inside our brain to bring those outside of us. I am optimistic that we are able to translate a lot of the biochemical signaling or uh, more complicated thoughts that happen inside of our brain that produce emotions, because I merely see those as uh, electrical signals. Anyways, back to my main thought. To demonstrate how this technology would stabilize foreign and interpersonal relations, I want to imagine a world in which this technology existed during the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of the moments in human history where we were the closest to destroying ourselves. So in 1962, during the Cold War, a toxic culture of national security strategy had developed within the Soviet Union and the USA. The foreign relations paradigm meant that the only way for a country to make its position safer globally was to increase the threat level against its opponent. So both the US and the Soviet Union were caught in a feedback loop. 
The Soviet Union wanted U.S. missiles out of Turkey, and the U.S. wanted Soviet missiles out of Cuba. But there was no obvious solution to de-escalating this situation. This situation ultimately was, in fact, solved by the telegraph. More broadly, the implementation of a communications infrastructure that linked the two leaders of both nations together. During the crisis, the breakdown in relations between the two countries was obviously untenable to both leaders. Thus, they sought to expedite the communications between them. The two leaders communicated directly via telegraph that was laid under sea from Washington to London, then I think somewhere in Scandinavia, then to Moscow. And through this very basic and slow, but at least direct communication, the leaders were able to slowly piece together a agreement to move forward with. Additionally, there was a meeting in America between two of the high-ranking officials in both governments face-to-face, -face, which allowed them to communicate in a more direct and honest medium. After the conflict, having some form of direct communication was deemed to be so important that both countries set up the Moscow-Washington hotline, which initially wasn't actually a red telephone, but turned into this idea of having this uh, red telephone on the desks of both leaders to communicate when there are times of crisis. Now, back to the thought experiment here. In a world where this technology that I'm proposing existed then, both of the leaders could have interfaced with each other at the height of this crisis, and not only heard the demands each nation had, but actually felt the weight of the stress, their obligations, and the uncertainty of the other leader. They could have elected to feel maybe how a regular citizen in the opposing country was feeling. The terror and fear alone may have triggered the leaders to adopt a new viewpoint informed by their empathy for the other country, no matter their differences. I hope this example demonstrates how vital communication is to stabilizing global and interpersonal relationships and promoting cooperation, and how great a barrier to clear communication the emotional and contextual divide is between communicators. If we'd now jump back to the present, we can see that this technology could really do a lot to connect humans and basically deliver the experience of being in someone else's shoes by basically shortcutting all the effort that someone might need to do in order to reach that point. But while communication is a good way of avoiding the problems which arise when there's a breakdown or lack of it, this is no complete strategy to move forward with. If we step back and look at the issue at hand, the big issue here, the survivability of humanity over a very long period of time, we see that the mere randomness for some catastrophe occurring still poses a significant threat to our species over the long run. Even if one accounts for clear, truthful, and mutually cooperative communication between humans, that doesn't fix nuclear accidents or food shortages. The focus for my second suggestion to remedy this issue is on creating stable niches in the first place. So what do I mean by a niche? I've spoken in previous episodes of my podcast about niches in a human sense, but just to summarize, a niche in the way I will use it in this series of episodes can be a physical space, a grouping of norms, or a set of intellectual practices. More broadly, a niche is a physical or cognitive environment accessible to humans, or lived in by humans, which can be built upon. 
that streamlines, cushions, or otherwise supports human existence, quality of life, knowledge acquisition and sharing, and socialization. Termites, spiders, and ants are all good examples of other animals who themselves create niches, but every living creature is said to inhabit a niche. Humans can be characterized as differing from many other animals in our ability to create niches. So this is why termites, spiders, and ants are a good example, as they create their own homes. But what sets humans even further apart is that our niches substantially change our environment and last a very, very long time. Niches serve to hold on to all the information humankind has gathered and pass it on to each successive generation. Humans will create things like libraries, universities, and even Wikipedia. These are all examples of cognitive niches. To deal with energy needs, humans designate areas of land to be developed with machines specialized in harnessing energy. These are physical niches. To create a medium in which humans can understand each other and cooperate efficiently, humans create languages and cultural norms to bind us together and give ourselves a sense of co collective identity. This again is more of an intellectual niche, or maybe even a social niche, you could call it. When we do construct niches, it happens with varying degrees of deliberation. Sometimes longevity is not prioritized. The design of many cities have not scaled well because city planners did not consider growth or accessibility when creating these cities. When the farming sector, for example, in the United States mechanized during the 1920s, little thought was put into the long-term effects of intensive farming. Thus, much of the Wild West agricultural land was rendered an infertile dust bowl in the 1930s. This is an example of humans building a niche using tools to aid their existence in their niche and not planning it out in the long term. I think that the next phase of a globalized, highly specialized humanity needs to be one where only robust niches are constructed. This is a lot to ask, but the deliberate structuring of our supply chains, economy, labor market, political structures, houses, cars, cities, schools, universities, and mindsets as a whole need to be engineered for longevity and have to be changeable based on the changes in our environments. To achieve this, I think it wouldn't be effective to address the problem via committee, policy, or government. In my opinion, things like that, while they do serve a purpose in facilitating human behaviors, are just too artificial or high effort to sustain. An effective solution, like I said before, must be low cost and easily implementable time and time again. We must impart a change over the coming generations which deliberately emphasizes long-term sustainability of cultural and environmental practices. This is already beginning to happen at scale with my generation. Growing up under the threat of climate change, urgency for something that is far in the future is imparted on us. We're beginning to get used to that practice, but we're only beginning to. We must continue to educate ourselves and future generations in this kind of thinking and anticipation. We should seek more creative and impactful ways to change the way we conceive of survival itself to account for long-term threats. In succeeding in this change, we will become a species more equipped to deal with the odds of survival one which plans its steps with care to maximize collective and individual goals. We are now at the point where we can afford to expend efforts 
and planning on faraway places and times. The way I see it, modern technologies can take care of most people's immediate needs. It's things that are far away which really pose a challenge to survival and quality of life for human generations to come. In a world where we practice this, the thoughts and advocacy of individuals would be spent working on solutions to the rise of powerful artificial intelligence, epidemiological strategy, space colonization, and more. This, I think, is only one part of a path that we as humans need to think about a lot and lay out for ourselves to turning our species into a sustainable and wealthier one. High fidelity, empathetic, and factual communication, I think, will be one way of reaching this goal because I think it's a way of getting a lot of people on board and committed to something, to a cause, to a goal that does not require something like a government to enforce it. I think that we should be doing these kinds of things, moving into the future together, and that if we become a species that plans in the long term, that does things with most people's agreement, it would go a long way to creating a humanity which is unified at a deep and meaningful level, and would enable us further to use these evolutionary traits that we've picked up that have made us such a successful species and build a better future for ourselves together. Thank you for listening. I'm not too sure about the next episode and what exactly it'll entail. Broadly, what I want to do with this next episode, which will focus on the future, is imagine the world that comes about once we have successfully met a lot of these challenges. What maybe new challenges might we face, or how would human life look? Either way, I'm excited to make the next one. It's been great making these past two ones, and thank you for listening. Bye for now.